What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a Gabe S. Done. Hello and welcome to Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. We're getting into retirement today. Can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Ann Lester and I am a recovering portfolio manager who is now trying to talk to people about how to make retirement saving less painful. What's a portfolio manager? So a portfolio manager is someone who manages other people's money. I spent almost 30 years picking stocks and bonds and mutual funds in other people's retirement savings accounts. Is that a necessary position? (laughs) Well, it depends who you ask, I guess. You know, I don't think it's as necessary now as it might have been when I got into the business 30 years ago. Right now, there are all kinds of platforms and robo-advisors and, you know, online places, brokerage firms that you can build your own portfolio. I would say for a lot of people, having someone do some of the rebalancing, and we can talk about that, what that means in a bit, is really helpful. And when you, I think individuals often get overwhelmed with information overload. So I'd say for some people, depending on how they want to spend their time and if they find managing their money interesting or terrifying, it can be really helpful to have someone else helping them. And that could be a portfolio manager or somebody else. How are you choosing the stocks? Well, so what I did was something called multi-asset class investing. And so what we would typically do is hire a manager who would pick the stocks. So I would look at, I worked at JP Morgan. So I'd look at all the JP Morgan portfolio managers and find three or four that I thought were going to do a good job. And we're going to do things differently from each other. So they'd behave a little differently. So sometimes when growth did wet well, one fund would do well. And then when value did well, another fund would do well. So you're trying to kind of balance what people are doing together. And then, you know, periodically decide that maybe we needed to make a switch. So we'd say, great, you've done a great job for us. Thank you so much. Now it's somebody else's turn. And sometimes we said that when they hadn't done such a great job. So it was kind of an active decision, right? Who we'd want to include and who we wouldn't. So they would be picking in order to diversify the one portfolio? Yes. Right. So what I used to manage was something called a target date fund. A target date fund is something you find in a lot of 401k plans. You can buy them on online brokerage firms. And the whole idea is to make managing your money for retirement easier by kind of coming up with a pre-preset 
level of risk in your portfolio so that when you're in your 20s, maybe the portfolio is almost 100% equities, maybe it's 95% stocks. And as you get older and when you're getting closer to retirement, right, the, the strategy automatically takes some of the risk out, sells some of the equities, puts in some bonds. And so you don't have to go in there and keep making changes. Let's like my audience is at varying levels of knowledge. Can you explain like what an equities is? Yep. So an equity, right, is literally a share of a company. So let's just take, I don't know, a, a good example, Apple, right? So Apple, once upon a time, was three guys in a garage, like with some plastic and, you know, memory boards that they were screwing together. And they found some friends and family who like gave them some money and they started making computers. And then they did something called, you know, going public. Mm. And so they sold fractional shares of their companies, which is why we refer to stocks as shares, because you're buying literally a share of the company. And so you're giving the company money, right? And they use that money to invest, to build factories, to like hire salespeople, to go make more money. And so you own a fractional share of how well that company does. Mm. Now, the good news is, you know, especially when you're in something called the S&P 500, which is an index of the largest 500 companies in the country that tends to, they tend to be pretty stable companies. They don't tend to go bankrupt, right? Like sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't do well. Sometimes the price goes up, sometimes the price goes down. But bottom line, you're buying some pretty safe companies. Every once in a while, something crazy happens like Enron and a company goes bankrupt, but like that almost never happens. So you're going to make money over time because typically over time, the price of stocks goes up Mm. and it goes up because those companies continue to grow and they continue to grow because the population of the world keeps growing and hopefully they become better and more productive. So you can almost assume that over the long run, and I'm talking like 10, 15, 20 Mm -hmm. years, stocks typically go up a little bit more than inflation, like maybe two or 3% more than inflation. Okay. So that's kind of a prediction you can make about like, what do you think will happen over the really long term? And that, that has historically been, you know, for over a hundred years, kind of what's happened. So in terms of it beating inflation, that is important because the cost of living goes up and then you're able to have the money growing at a rate that is more than, so like by the time you take it out, it won't actually just mean nothing. Exactly. (laughs) So if you stick your money in the savings account that comes with your checking account, like right now you're getting 0.05% in interest. And, you know, as we're talking today, right in early 2024, inflation has come down a lot from where it was last year. Like some people say it's back down to around 2%, but like you can do the math. 2% minus 0.05 is like you're losing almost 2% every year you leave your money in your savings account. So thus, you know, for a month or two or three, that's a fine place to leave your money, but it's not great for for long. And certainly for retirement, Mm -hmm right? What you really want is to use stocks that go up, you know, after inflation, call it three to 4% a year to compound because the money that your stocks, you know, the amount that your money grows every year is going to grow even more next year. So if you have a hundred dollars and in turn 10%, next year, you'll have $110. And the year after that, you don't have $120, you have $121. Uh. And the year after that, you don't have $130, you have $133, right? You let that roll for like 25 or 30 years and it it really adds up. Oh, so that's compound returns. Compound returns. So that works because it's doing percentages. Yes. Okay. Well, and so the percentage is multiplying on itself. So you don't get 10% of your original amount, which is like 100, mm-hmm. then you just get 10 every year you get 10% of what you have. Mm-hmm. So every year that amount gets bigger. So basically, yeah, your money doubles every seven years if you're getting a 10% return. It's so funny because it really is this thing that I figured out as I started making more money and like actually going into like stocks and stuff is that you really have money and make money. Like if you already have money, it's very easy to make more money. Yep. That is very true. And the hard part is like starting the savings. Like that's just hard work. Yeah. It is not. It is not fun. That's like the main thing is that once you have that, 
and like barring in a, a disaster, you could pretty much just make money on top of money. Yep. Yep. You just, the trick is leaving it alone and just letting it grow. Right. Yes. Well, the trick is making the first amount that you can well, feel as yeah. a cushion or that you don't need desperately and then leaving it alone. Yep. That's the name of the game. So what is it? I'm just curious, like if you get, if you have a wealth manager or you have someone running your your set, let's say like your step SEP or your Roth or whatever, because you're like a freelancer or independent or you just want that on top of a 401k. Like what percentage are those people supposed to take? Well, supposed to is a strong word. I know. <laughs> so like as everything in life, if you know you I do believe you kind of get what you pay for. And I'll just take a step back and say that a financial advisor, right, which is what these people typically are. You know, they're financial advisors who are fiduciaries that are obligated to act in your best interest. And then they're also people, this is less common today, called stockbrokers or brokers. And they're not legally obligated to act in your best interest. They're legally obligated to show you things that are appropriate for you. So if you're hiring someone, check the small print and make sure you're hiring a fiduciary because they are not incentivized to sell you things that make them money. They're, they're not allowed to look at whether or not selling you this thing or that thing will make them more money. Oh. Like that is absolutely not the way they can think about that. If you're working with a broker, right, a broker typically makes money on the number of trades you do, right? So clearly they have an incentive to get you to trade a little more, mm. or they may get paid different commissions on different kinds of things they mm. sell you, right? So that the incentives get a little murkier there. So point number one, think about a fiduciary. Point number two, that fiduciary is typically a pretty skilled person who spent years doing this. And if you think about it from their perspective, just like you'd expect to pay a good lawyer or a good accountant, like X hundreds of dollars an hour for their services, that financial advisor is going to want to look at that kind of compensation. So here's where it gets tricky. If you have a very small balance, they typically charge you a percentage of what you have. Mm -hmm. And the smaller the balance is, the higher the percentage is that they're charging you because they're still working back. This is what I'm talking about. If you have money, it's easier to keep the money. Yeah. That, it, it's, it's, it's like going to a fancy hotel and everything's free. Like you pay this really high rate for the room, but then you get free internet, you get free breakfast, you get free everything, yeah. right? You, you have less money and you don't get free anything. So there's a little bit of that there. So there are some financial advisors and financial planners that just charge a flat fee. Mm -hmm. And depending on how big your portfolio is, it might be better to just pay that flat fee and get some advice and then kind of do it by yourself mm -hmm. than necessarily pay that fee every year. Into like a real life human being, and let's just remember a real life human being is like doing stuff and answering your phone calls and like sending you emails and all that. There are more automated systems and robo-advisors are one of them that can do a lot of what a financial advisor does. The thing that I think is really the most valuable that a financial advisor can do for most people is hold your hand when stuff gets weird or scary or help you make a goal and stick to it. Mm. And I think that's, that's just better with a human being. Like they can just be, they can help you be more accountable. I think there's some, I don't want to mention any by name because I haven't checked them out in a, in a year or two, but like there are some financial platforms that are trying to replicate some of that experience, yeah. but, but I, I, it just doesn't work as well without a human being. So yeah. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because when I'm looking to work with someone, I really need to be able to get someone fast. My job works very fast. Podcasts work very fast. 
and I've actually been looking for an assistant and I don't need to waste time sorting through matches without getting the highest quality person, right? When I'm looking to hire someone, whether that's a grant writer or a musician or something like that, it's very overwhelming because you get a lot of messages, but you're not able to like parse through yourself, which ones are actually worth looking at. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash badwithmoney right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash badwithmoney terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? First, the bad news. Mint is shutting down. Now, good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. That's right. I use Mint and now I'm using Monarch Money. It is very stressful, confusing, and time-consuming to manage my finances. I've tried other finance apps. They don't really work. Like, you know, I was very committed to Mint and then I was uh, deeply sad when Mint went away. But now I have tried Monarch. It's so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I mean, I really value a company that is proactively looking at how to make finances easier. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, also has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Can you imagine being able to have a budget app with your partner? That is wild. You can see all your finances. You can collaborate on your budget. You can get insights on your cash flow and reoccurring transactions. It's a very easy way to manage a household's finances. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budget app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y slash badmoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 37,025-1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. If you have all the information about your business in one place, you can make way better decisions. And this is an unprecedented offer, meaning this is totally worth your time. As someone who runs a business, having all of this together in order to close my books, that would be invaluable. It's a time saver. It's literally the biggest time saver. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. That's netsuite.com slash badwithmoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. I mean, can we talk about the S&P 500? Like, is that, you know, so there's investing in that and then there's investing in like ETFs and like all like if someone is just like Mm -hmm. 
because I was just going through my retirement fund because I, I didn't look at it for a while because I was dealing with a breakup that had a financial element to it. And I was like, I didn't want to look at any money things because I was so upset. But I was looking at it and I was like, okay, so it's in like, like ETFs and stuff and then mutual funds. And then it's also in like, in like Apple or Microsoft. And I was like, that's interesting. So I was like, if someone's putting it together, what, what should they, and they're just starting, like, what do they put stuff in? Okay. So if you're doing this by yourself, Mm -hmm. I would strongly recommend, and not just because I used to manage them, that you buy something like a target date fund or a balanced fund, because you don't have to do any thinking at all. You Mm -hmm. just go find a cost-effective one that's available and stick your money in there and don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Then once you start investing your money and it starts growing, you can take your time if you're interested to become more knowledgeable so that you can start doing more if you want. And the reason I say it that way is because very often people find themselves completely paralyzed by, what if I do it wrong? I'm not sure what to do. And you sit and you wait and your money is like losing value because of inflation and you haven't started. And it's just in there and you haven't bought anything. (laughs) Well, it's just sitting in the account, right? Exactly. Shrinking. And then they're charging you fees on the account, right? So it's literally shrinking and you're not doing anything. So, you know, I write about this a lot in the book that I've got coming out, but like one of the biggest barriers for people taking action is the fear of screwing it up. Mm-hmm. And you want to give yourself as f- the fewest number of decisions possible to take away that fear, because the more complex and complicated you can make it, and boy, can you make this stuff complicated? And like arguably the more complicated and sophisticated and diversified you get, like the marginally better the outcome will be. Marginally. But if trying to get to that super fancy portfolio like takes you three years to figure out how to do it, then you've just lost three years of compound interest and that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so better to start off super simple. If if a target date fund feels too too crazy, if this is your retirement money and you're in your 20s or 30s, just buy the S&P index, right? That's... I would say that's slightly less ideal than like buying something a little more diversified, but it's way better than not doing anything. And then you asked about like ETFs and the S&P. There's there's a couple different things that get thrown around, right? The S&P 500 is the name of an index mm-hmm. that tracks the 500 largest companies in by market share, right? Not by how much they sell, but like what the value of their stock is. That index is used by portfolio managers to replicate or manage around that exposure. So you could buy an index mutual fund or an index ETF. Both of them could what we call replicate the S&P 500. So both of those things could, for very few basis points, maybe 10, maybe 20 basis points, it's 0.1 or 0.2%, right? A basis point is one hundredth of a percent. So pretty cost effectively get you exposure to those 500 companies. But ETF or mutual fund, like their technical differences between the two, ETFs are often a little cheaper. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing this by yourself, ETFs are often the easiest thing to do. What's a basis point? A basis point is the way asset management firms and financial advisors talk about how much they charge. And a basis point is point it's 0.01%. So a basis point, one basis point is 0.01%. A hundred basis points is 1%. Okay. So if you can find an index fund for 10 basis points, that's going to charge you 0.1%, which is a pretty good deal. Yeah. Can you talk a, a bit about, you said target date funds, just a little bit more about what that is, and then a balance fund? Mm-hmm. Yep. So a target date fund and a balanced fund both do similar things in that in one fund, and you can buy target date ETFs now, they're pretty new. You could buy target date mutual funds and just about almost all name brand mutual fund companies have these. What they do is inside of the target date fund, you'll usually find at least 10 or 15 things inside of it. And these things aren't Apple or NVIDIA or Microsoft or Ford. What they are are large cap equity, small cap equity, international equity, 
bonds, right? So inside of that fund, what they're doing is getting a mix of different kinds of stocks. So stocks from big companies, stocks from small companies, stocks from international companies, right? You kind of want to own some international companies, right? Is it, uh, what's the company that's making Wagovia, right? That's in Norway or something. It's like, got it. Right. Like you, you want to own some of that, right? So if you just stick to the S&P, right, you're not getting some of the other good stuff that's out there. Right. 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 And, and a balanced fund is a similar thing. It's just balanced. So, so target date funds change over time. So if you're, you know, 30 years old today, you're going to retire in call it 35 years. So what's 2025 plus 35? Quick, do the math, right? 2070 or whatever that fund is, right? So you'd buy the 2070 fund. Okay. And in 2070, right, that fund is not going to have 75 or 90% equity like it might today. It's going to have like 50% equity or 40% equity so that you don't, you know, when stock market goes up and down a lot, right, you don't want it to go down a lot right before you retire. So it takes some risk out of the portfolio. Oh, so then you can only touch it. You can only get it in 2070. You can take it whenever you want. You just, it just, it just odd. So, oh, here's a, so much fun talking about this stuff. Okay. So when you have something called a balanced fund or a target date fund, right? You want to rebalance that every year, right? Because every year stocks go up, bonds go down, bonds go up, stocks go bound, right? Stuff happens and you end up with a really different, level of risk than you started with. And so every year you want to kind of tidy that up and get back to your idea of what the right level of risk is, which is how much stocks, how much bonds. A balanced fund is always going to rebalance to the same starting place. By itself? Well, the portfolio portfolio managers, this is what they do. So the portfolio manager will rebalance. You don't have to do anything. You buy it, you let it alone. Okay. Every year that balance manager will rebalance back to an aggressive balance fund might have 70% in equity. A moderate balance fund might have 50% in equity, right? And they'll just go back to that balance. You can buy that thing or sell that thing whenever you want. Target date funds work the same way, except instead of always rebalancing back to that same 70%, as you get older, it'll rebalance to 50% and then 40%. You can still sell it whenever you want. Like you're not trapped in it, right? It's your choice when to buy it or sell Mm -hmm. it. But but if you don't do anything, it'll just automatically get less risky. Whereas if you buy a really aggressive balance fund when you're 25 and then forget to do anything with it until you're 65, which seems hard to imagine, but in 401k plans, sometimes people do this, right? right? It's going to be really out of whack. With you, you might be very unpleasantly surprised if the market goes down like it did in 2008 and you're 63 years old. Like, oh, that's ugly. Okay, interesting. No, I'm fascinated by all of this. I've, you're explaining it so well. We, I interview a lot of people and they sound either like put upon or they're confused by having to explain like basic stuff. But you're oh. just kind of, you're like got a good teacher voice. Well, well I don't know why I want to be. I don't, I don't want to sound like that. I, listen, I think, I think, you know, financial services professionals, right? Which is, I guess, what I am. I'm an author now. I'll call myself an author, but a financial <laughs> services professional, right? We use a lot of really technical language mm-hmm. and it's as in any field, right? You get really, cause you want precise language. We're also really highly regulated if we are still working and have a financial securities license. Like we have to be really careful with what we say. Right. And so I think that can make us sound kind of squirrely sometimes. So I'm not working for a bank anymore, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> and I, I have spent the last couple of years really talking to people in their twenties and thirties about how they feel about their own saving and investing and trying to understand where people get tripped up and why. Because on the one hand, it's like losing weight. Like you eat less and exercise more and you'll lose weight. And as you said, right, making money or investing, right, spend less than you make and invest it and then you'll be fine. Okay, so kind of that's not news. We all kind of know that, except we still can't do it, right? So why do we keep falling apart? Why does this not work? It's because it's intimidating and scary and people feel like they're going to make a mistake or they feel ashamed of how they've been behaving or they just don't want to look stupid. Mm -hmm. So they get stuck. So let's get unstuck. Yeah. Or you're just like looking around at the larger system and you're like, well, I don't matter. None of it matters, whatever. But I think probably like I was going to ask in your so you just made a face like in your research because you've been talking to people of, of these ages I was going to ask, like, what are you finding or what are you seeing 
as like a common barrier. And it's not and it's not like a nihilism. I think some of for some of them, sure, it's nihilism. Like one of my one of my kids <laughs> keeps saying the world is going to be underwater or on fire. Why am I bothering? And I'm like, well, just on the off chance that it isn't right. like, you know, if you're underwater, it won't matter. So save <laughs> just in case. Right. I, Here's the thing, you know, I, I did that compound math, like 10% a year, you get 120, you get 121, you get 133. Like it takes, I'd say six or seven or eight years or longer to actually see how that works. And if you're in your twenties, that's a really long time to wait for like gratification. Yeah. And it, it just, it just, until you see it happen, you don't really believe that it's going to happen. Like, oh, come on, really? Like, I know the world, it doesn't work like that. Well, it, it actually does and always has, mm -hmm. but it's hard to, or at least for the last 150 years, but it's really hard to believe that until you see it. So I think some of it is like, you just kind of have to take it on faith. It's a little like magic, right? It's a little, and that doesn't feel very good. That feels really scary. The second thing I think, and again, it's part of just human nature, but also being a little having less experience, let's put it that way, is really hard to delay gratification. Like it's painful mm. not to spend money on stuff you want right now. Like it actually hurts. And if you're saving for retirement, you're saving for like, literally your brain thinks your future self in 40 years is a stranger. Mm -hmm. Like literally if people have done brain imaging studies and they show pic pictures of people that are all hooked up to these machines, they show them pictures of themselves and like one part of their brain lights up. And then they say, well, Think about yourself, you know, tomorrow, the same part of their brain lights up. Think about yourself next year, same part of their brain lights up. Think about yourself in 15 years and a totally different part of their brain lights oh. up, which is the same part of your brain that lights up is when you think about a stranger. Oh, that's interesting. So, so when you're saving for your own retirement, it doesn't feel like you're doing something nice for yourself, mm -hmm. which you are. Mm -hmm. Instead, it feels like you're giving money away to some random stranger. like that doesn't feel good, right? It it feels terrible. Yeah. It hurt. It hurts, yeah. right? So so building the muscle of of that sacrifice just like and I make a lot of food analogies cuz <laughs> cuz I'm a spender and I struggle with like not eating the second or third or fourth cookie, so like oh, this yeah. is this is my life, right? But it's it's hard to build the muscle to live with the discomfort mm -hmm. of denying yourself that thing you want. Mm -hmm. And and then let's just be honest, people in their 20s and maybe 30s don't feel like they got a lot of spare cash floating around. Right. right? And that's just true. There's, so it's it's actually hard to do. There's something cool to me about looking at my retirement fund and watching it having gone up and being like seeing it in there. And like so for delayed gratification for me, I'm like trying to have the gratification be like, look at that number climbing. But also then there's also the part of me that looks at it and is like, what could I do with that money right now? Oh, uh, you bet. Like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. So I'm trying to shift the dopamine rush to, wow, it's really growing and look how much it's growing and I can put so much more in there versus like being like, look at my money being trapped. And and look at how much I've done. And if I do the same amount in five years, oh my goodness, how much more is that going to be? Right? right. I mean that. And then And then there's a couple other things you can do, especially for retirement that make it a little easier. And that is to try to make that, that stranger feel less strange to oh. you. So spend some time with older people in your life. If you don't have older people in your life, maybe find some, right. And just kind of, just kind of develop a little empathy for what they're doing. And like, wow, that's a life I'd like to be leading or, oh my gosh, there was a, just a hysterical ad on TV from a nerd wallet during oh, one of yeah. the football games over the weekend that I caught with like, this is your future self, right? It was hysterical. And that's what you want to do, right? You want to imagine your future self, like not having enough money to live the life you want. It makes the sacrifice a little easier. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that ad. That was, that was brilliant. I haven't seen it. I'm going to go check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. 
putting away money for retirement since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I think shifting it to being more of a game, like an exciting thing. Like, again, like I went through this breakup. I did not look at my retirement fund for a year and a half. I probably suffered for that. I I have not. I, 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 oh, oh, I bet maybe you didn't. I don't know. I didn't question anything the guy was doing. I didn't like ask myself what the fees were on anything. Like, I know he's a fiduciary, but I'm like, you weren't, you were just sort of giving, you sort of letting Jesus take the wheel. <laughs> like, you can't really. If he's a good driver, I don't know. I don't like... know. I didn't even know if he was a good driver. I never checked. Well, so, so here's the thing. You, you have to trust the advisor you're working with, right. right? And if you don't trust them, get another advisor, just, just out of the gate. Like, I, I remember having this conversation about childcare. And if like, you have to video the person who's taking care of your kids, then fire them and hire somebody else. Because if you're already at that point, it's too late, you don't trust them. Right. Like, listen to what your intuition is telling you. If you don't trust them, like, do some due diligence and like, make a change. Or not even so, trust, just like, you don't feel, if you don't feel like you can ask questions, or if you don't feel like they're going to answer questions well. If you don't feel like you can ask questions, you need another advisor. You're being really lovely right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. But 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 then think about it from Would the you other. you like to talk to me every day? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not qualified no, to give I know, financial I know. advice anymore. Flip it around, though. Like this guy, you know, depending on the size of your account, right? He's making or not making X amount of money on you and his time is worth whatever, right? So he's also kind of managing that. But but I would argue if you don't feel like you can actually talk to him occasionally or her, like you really need to think about that relationship or let them know that you don't feel comfortable asking the questions and like help. Like this should not feel like this. I don't think it should be scary. And also I felt like I was bothering him a lot, but like that's his job to be bothered. Well, I'll flip it back and just say he may or may not feel like he wants to have clients with the size of your portfolio. Like, I don't know. Like, it may just be he's got a bad business model and he's like trying to grab clients and he shouldn't say yes to everybody. Right. I'm just saying like that, 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 that's a bad, that's a bad business model. That's still on them. Right. That's still on this person. But you should not be in a relationship with someone who makes you feel uncomfortable about your own money. Yes. That's bad. And can we talk about like, you talk about how it's more of a DIY 401k situation than a pension. So can we talk about the difference between those and like who yeah. still has pensions and and who and what do you do now with your like, OK, now I'm a 401k situation? It's kind of a myth, right, that, you know, once upon a time, everybody worked for the same employer for 40 years mm. and then you retired and you got to go watch and they gave you like 65% of your final average pay, and then you got social security. So basically you got a paycheck for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. People fantasize about the good old days that way, like never did more than like 50% of Americans ever have a pension. So right out of the gate, like us fantasizing about the glorious past is like just not Interesting. real. Couple things about pensions. They still exist for some state employees, state governments, local governments still have pensions, not everybody, but some. First responders often have pensions, like you put in 20 years, you put in 30 years, you get your paycheck. A couple of, of small handful of corporations still have pensions, but they've mostly moved away from pensions. And the reason why is not necessarily because they're cold-hearted and evil, but because about 15 years ago, the government passed some laws and regulations that changed the way companies have to do the accounting for the pension. Okay. And because of those accounting changes, it used to be that because you were investing money for these pensions that you'd be paying out for the next 65 mm -hmm. years, right? Like forever, they could do something called smoothing the assets that they held. And so they take the average of the returns over five years, and that would be how they accounted for it. The law changed and said that you have to do something called marking to market so that every year you have to say, actually, this is exactly what it's worth. And because of the huge run up in stocks and the huge change in interest rates, 
and these accounting roles, it suddenly started looking a lot more expensive for the companies to have these defined benefit plans, these pension plans on their balance sheet. And so the size of the pension got bigger and bigger and bigger. And for some big companies like Ford or, you know, name a big old line company with a lot of retirees, the pension plan was like five or 10 times bigger than like the ongoing business of running the car. Whoa! So it turned into this crazy thing that was swinging around the value of the stock. And like management was like, I have a pension plan and I make some cars on the side. Right. So that, that change in the law made a lot of companies sort of say, look, we can't handle this financial risk of this pension swinging around. And oh, by the way, because of these accounting rules, we're now what's called underwater because interest rates drop so much. It gets super technical on pension funding and like kind of boring, yeah. but basically as interest rates go down, right, you it looks like you don't have enough money to pay your pensions. Interest rates go back up. You have enough money to pay your mm-hmm. pensions. So because these companies were underfunded, they couldn't just close them and give people annuities. Right. So they had to wait. So they all were just like, this is too much crazy volatility. We can't handle it. We just We just need to stop the craziness for the company's sake. And at the same time, right, so this is all happening in like the 80s and 90s. At the same time, American workers are starting to move employers more. So Ah. a defined benefit pension really works if you stay at the employer for at least 20 or 30 years. Oh, wow. Okay, show of hands. How many people here have worked for this? Like I worked for J.P. Morgan for almost 30 years. I'm kind of weird that way. Like my kids have already changed jobs twice. Like, like if you're not going to stay with the same company, a defined benefit pension plan gives you zip. Like it's a terrible pension. A 401k plan can move around. If you save, you can bring it with you. Mm -hmm. So for a much more mobile workforce, right, which we have today, a 401k plan is actually a lot better, Mm -hmm. except that you, the individual worker, are the one who's owning the risk, right, right, yeah. of the markets going up or down, or the risk that you don't save enough. Right, that you don't fund it. Right. So those are the two risks that have been shifted to the individual person now that used to be on the company. So what's an annuity? Sorry. Okay. An annuity, right, is a contract that you get from an insurance company. And the simplest kind of annuity is I give you my $100,000. It's called an immediate annuity. And you're going to give me 5,000 bucks a year until I die. Mm-hmm. You know, if I did at 65, I could live for 10 years. I could live for 40 years. That's not my problem. That's your problem, insurance company. Okay. So, so it's a way to, to make sure you get a certain amount of money all the time. And so you take out of the equation, right, the risk that the market does something crazy. It's the insurance company's problem. And you take out the risk that you live to be 110. So and you run out of money because yeah. your money's got to last a really long time. So that's something that they would just give you if you had a pension, like they could just give that to you. That's the way an old-fashioned pension would work. Uh, and so when you give your money, like you take some money in your 401k plan and you give it to an insurance company and buy an annuity from them, you're basically recreating that pension oh. kind of income. They give you a check for life. Okay. They give you a little bit less then you would probably earn by yourself because they're guaranteeing it. Okay. Yeah. That's the catch always. Well, there's, you know, there's no free lunch here, right? Like the only free lunch is compound returns. If you leave your money alone, that's kind of a free lunch. But, but like for this insurance company, the insurance company is taking the risk that the markets are bad and they're taking the risk that you live to 110. I have a question. Should you always max out if you have an IRA or SEP like Roth or SEP IRA? Should you always max it out? I don't know. Can you afford to? Well, yeah, but like, is it is it better to do that if you can even a little bit because of taxes? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is it better to be like, okay, let me just do that so that taxes are better versus like, well, or is it also good to put it into a Roth 401k, right? Where you have to pay the taxes on the income, but then it grows forever tax free and you don't owe any taxes on the way out if you're young. Right. A lot of people would say it's good to look at a Roth IRA or a Roth. I don't, I don't know if they have Roth SEPs, actually, but a Roth IRA. Right. You pay your income tax. Then you put the money in. You can get it out without all the tax penalties for certain reasons. And oh. when you pull it out, when you're 65, you don't pay any income tax. Most people who are younger, right, in their 20s and maybe 30s are going to be at a lower tax bracket now than they will be when they're 65. So it's actually better to pay the tax up front and then it grows a lot more and then you don't have to pay taxes on the way out. So it's actually for young people, if you're at a low tax bracket, it's 
probably makes a lot of sense to do that in a Roth. The problem with putting it, but but there, there's, so there are two challenges with what, when I said, I don't know, can you afford sure. it, right? If you think you want the money before you turn 59 and a half, it's a really good idea not to put it all into your IRA because you can't get it out without the tax penalty. Right. Yeah. So let's go back. Can you explain like, so 401k is through a company, but, or, or through where you work, mm-hmm. but now you can kind of have an individual one, right? You can only, and again, I'm going to repeat, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a financial planner. You got to do your own homework here, but a single employer plan or a SEP 401k is set up for people who are basically self-employed mm-hmm. and you can contribute, you're your own employer, right? So you set up an employer plan for yourself and you can contribute a lot more to that than you can to an IRA. Okay. Because the limit on contributions in an IRA is not very high. It's only $7,000 this year. The limit inside a 401k plan is $23,000. And I think the SEP limit is like something like Mm $68,000 or something. So it depends right on what you have. The IRAs have a pretty low ceiling, right? In terms of making contributions, a 401k plan from an employer, or sometimes they're called 403B plans, or like a whole bunch of different little codes that refer to the tax code, but basically they all work the same way, which is that you put money in. A lot of times the employer will match. match. It, yeah. So if you have access to a 401k plan or a 403B plan at work, you really want to get the free money, get the free money, get the free money, get the free money, get the match. So if they're matching 50% of what you put in, you're already getting a guaranteed 50% return on your contributions. Wow. That's insane. So am I, if I'm self-employed, right. I can't, I can't go get myself a 401k. Like uh, only things I can get are nope. things I can contribute like less to. I can't get one that I contribute to $23,000 to. Not the 23000 but if you set up a SEP, a single employer plan, the limits are higher and you can put in more money. Okay. Yeah. But you can, I think you can put more money. I, I, again, I, I don't want to say something stupid here. Yeah, but. I was just looking it up because I think last year for me, I was able to, for my SEP, I was able to put in like 9,000 or something like that, like the max. So you're like self-employed, you get a SEP or a Roth. Now, why, why were you saying that someone's, I'm like 35, what are the differences between the two and, and in terms of tax reasons? Cause I know we said, okay, so it's so, better if you're younger, cause you'll be in a higher tax bracket to pay the taxes when you're older. But yeah, what is the difference between the two? This gets really complicated really fast. Okay. So a regular IRA, you put in $7,000. Let's say you make $67,000 a year. You put in 7,000, you only get taxed on 60. Right. So you're paying less income tax now. That money grows tax-free until you can take it out. Early is just 59 and a half. You might be able to wait till you're 75. It's 73 now, but if you're born after whatever, I can't remember oh the God. date. It's like right, right around your age is when it flips to 75, you can leave it in longer. You pay income tax on it then. Okay. So they're going to tax you on the way in or they're going to tax you on the way out. They're going to tax you for sure one way or the other. So if they tax you on the way out, you pull it out as income. And then when you're 65 or 68 or whatever, you're paying tax at whatever tax bracket you're in. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we don't know what those taxes will be like. I think it's not a crazy assumption to think that they'll be higher than they are today, given the size of the deficit. But like, that's a gamble. We don't right. know. So if you do a Roth IRA and you make $67,000 a year and you contribute $7,000 a year, you still pay taxes on all 67000 So you're paying whatever your tax bracket is, like $2,000 in taxes, and then you're contributing seven. So you'll have less money today by doing that Roth. That money will grow tax-free. There are fewer restrictions on tapping that money for things if you need it. Mm. You won't pay any income taxes if you tap it. So it's a lot more flexible. Mm. And when you're 65 or 67, there are fewer restrictions on mandatory withdrawals. And it's probable that you will be in a comparable or higher tax bracket. So getting to take it tax-free then is going to be a real big benefit because you won't owe 30% 30% tax on that. Right. So it's just kind of judging what you think your situation will be or what it is now. Yeah. I think some conventional financial planning advice is it's good to have some investments that are tax-free and taxable because you want to be able to look at where you are and like decide what's best for you that year. And if it's all one or all the other, you don't have the ability to kind of manage your taxes. 
Again, that's what financial planners mm -hmm. do. That's why they get paid lots of money because that those decisions when you're older and have some assets can be really expensive if you get them wrong. Most people would say in your 20s and probably somewhere in your 30s, it makes sense to do Roth and then you should flip into regular. You know, you can look it up online. There are all kinds of guides. And, mm -hmm. you know, my former employer, JP Morgan, has a great one that talks about when it makes sense to switch. But, you know, it, 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 it's a personal decision based on your current financial circumstances and then what you imagine those might be like in 30 years, which is always a bit of a guessing game. I know. They love to make you guess. Well, so here, here's one of the reasons why doing this for most people is so unpleasant, right? You're saving money and giving it to a stranger and you're making yourself feel pain in the moment because you're cause, you, you don't get to buy all the stuff you want right now. Okay, so that's not, that's not good. You're investing it in markets that go up and down and that's scary. You're trying to imagine what your needs will be like in 30 years, which is like definitionally unknowable. And oh, by the way, you have to plan on like thinking about doing this until you die. So why do I even want to have this conversation? Like there's just nothing good going on here, right? So all of these elements like put you in a terrible frame of mind to make rational decisions. Like it's just, it's just icky, right? So it's not surprising most people don't like doing this, which is why I'm a huge advocate for like trying to automate what you can either through your 401k, through a financial advisor, through, you know, automatic debits, automatic investing. Like the less you make yourself think about the stuff you find icky, the more mental energy you'll have and emotional energy you'll have to think about the big decisions that might make a big difference. Like, hey, can I figure out how to save 1% more? It's much better to try to think about that when you're not going, oh, this is so awful. I don't want to do it, right? Like that's a bad place to try to save money. No, absolutely. You're talking with our last guest about fight or flight and like that being where you operate yeah. from monetarily always. Yeah, and you make bad decisions there. You just do. That's what's so hard, right? Is like you don't have money, so you make bad decisions because you're scared. Then you do have money and you're just kind of coasting and then things are more free and you're able to just compound money on money. And it's like getting to the first part of having money and then keeping it without, I don't know, getting sick, getting in a car accident, something bad happening. Like, it's just like so, it's like the worst video game. Well, I think that's a great point. And again, I just go back to saying, and I, I talk about this a lot in my book, like automate, automate, yeah. automate. Don't make yourself make those decisions, right? Just just get rid yeah. of them. Emergency fund first. Emergency fund before 401k, emergency fund before everything. So that if that happens, right, you get into that, whatever happens, you're not just blowing your life up, right? What if, if you have your own like LLC or your own S Corp, can you make a 401k for yourself? Oh, now you're getting way outside of my level of comfort. Like, <laughs> talk to your talk to your accountant on that one. That's not what I I'm do. I'm just curious. I'm I'm maybe, scheming. I think so. I'm constantly. I, I think so. Maybe <laughs> check with the tax person. That's true. Right. That is a taxes thing. You're right. You're right. That's a tax thing. Yeah. yeah. So when you are talking to young people again, I'm just curious. Like, it's that, and then what are some of the questions they have or what are some of the things that they are fundamentally misunderstanding or is getting in the way, just not even spiritually, but like logistically? So logistically, I think some of the questions we started with, like what is an ETF and how is that different from the S&P? Like those are, those are like Mack trucks and cucumbers. Like they've got <laughs> nothing to do with one another. Like the S&P is the name of an index that tracks how companies are performing and an ETF is a legal wrapper around investments. Right. Like they're in, they're in different categories of thing, right? So just the way the financial press, the stuff online, social media talks about these things, it's like, it's all interchangeable and like, it's not interchangeable. And so when you go to say, oh, well, I want to do X, I should buy an X, like there is no X to buy. So right, right there, people get stuck. Yeah. So I think that's a, and then the second thing I hear really commonly, and I just had this conversation like a month or two ago is somebody who was doing like almost all of the right things and was just terrified that they weren't and didn't know who they could ask for reassurance. Really? Like, am I doing this right? And for whatever reason, they didn't feel comfortable talking to their parents about it. And they were just like, well, I don't want to ask my friends because then I'll look stupid. And I don't want to ask HR because you know what, HR is going to, you know, what are they going to tell me? I don't, you know. And so she said, you know, I'm saving this amount. And I said, well, that's, that's great. Like, that's really good. And, you know, they've got student loans to pay. And I'm like, okay, so just, you're, you're doing fine. Like you're 26 years old. Like you're, you're doing 
fine. You're on track. You're doing a great job. You should feel good mm-hmm. about it. And they were just like, I should? Yeah. Because they were just, you know, beating themselves up. And it, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint, right? You are not going to fix, if you're working on paying off debt and you're trying to build up some savings, this doesn't just happen poof, right? It, it is like a multi-month, probably multi-year journey. Yeah. The thing is, like, you can really shift things around in just a year or two. That's it's hard to see, but you start doing little baby steps. It does, it does kind of add up. And what, like, how do you shift things around in a year or two? Like, what are the steps that you're like, if you just did this right now, we could like sort this out a little bit. Yeah. So uh, some of it is, is silly things like, how much money are you spending on subscriptions that you don't use? Yeah, I know. Like go into your phone. What are you spending money on? I just did this for myself for the first time in like 18 months. I'm finally taking my own advice. I'm like, holy God, like, I had no idea. I was still subscribed to that thing. Like, oh my gosh, I haven't used that in three years. Like, okay, that was kind of stupid. It's not a huge amount of money, but if you're trying to build up your emergency savings fund, like three subscriptions at 189 bucks a year, like that's 600 bucks right there that you might not have, when you signed up for it, it was like, oh, it was, you know, $9.99 a month or $12 a month. Yeah, that's reasonable. I, and I, you might've signed up because you wanted that thing right now. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll cancel it later. And you know, later never comes, right? So those are kind of small dollars for some people. For some people, they're not small dollars, right? But like, I bet most people can go in there and find at least 500 bucks in subscriptions they're not using. Like just- like how many streaming services do you really right. need? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so 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 that's number one. It's just like maybe there's some small stuff you can just find. The second one, and this is the most powerful one, especially if you're younger. When you're younger, when you're in your first or second or third job, right, it's very, very likely that you're going to see some meaningful salary increases as you gain experience and get more valuable and get promoted. Promise yourself today that you will save half of your next raise. And, and just put it where? Just save it somehow? P- put it wherever it needs to go. Do you do you have an emergency fund? No, put it there. If you've got your emergency fund or mostly built, then put it into your 401k. If you're getting all the free money from your employer, then use it to pay down and you've got your emergency fund, then start tackling any credit card debt or high interest rate student loan debt. Like, But if you commit now to saving money you don't have, yet mm. it doesn't hurt as much because you know where it's going to go it's not gonna you don't think you of know it. where you've got a plan yeah. right oh i can really work on getting this down i'm pretty sure i'm going to get promoted this year i'm pretty sure i'm going to get a five thousand dollar tax refund two thousand five hundred of that better go into your emergency savings fund right i mean think about taking half it you know some people will say take it all and i'm like yeah especially if you're younger that's that's pretty grim like you don't want to be sharing an apartment with five people for the rest of your life, right? So like that's Unless that's you grim, love that and they're all in your polycule. That's cool. Do what makes you happy, but if that's if you're not living the lifestyle you aspire to, you can still get there, just get there a little more slowly and make sure you boost up your savings. Yeah, I think the idea of being able to turn stuff around is is hard for people or they they think like, I mean, what you were saying about the person thinking that they weren't doing things right, it's because you don't know who to run it by because nobody talks about it. And so you don't know how to run it by your friends because, you know, I have no concept. Like I I was doing really well. I went through this terrible breakup and financial decimation. I was very uh, disappointed in myself. So I was judging myself versus my old self when like my, you know, friend was sort of like, well, but like you're better off than nine, like look up the statistics. You're better off than like 85% of people our age. You just have nothing to compare it to other than your old self. Well, and, you know, I think it's fine for us all to have things we aspire to. And again, I it sound like a broken record. Like I talk a lot about this in my book, like beating yourself up does not get you very far. Like you just I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is just accept where you are and make it better. You can forgive yourself for making mistakes like it's okay. Don't, don't, don't keep making them. Like, maybe that's what you get. Like, if you make them four times in a row, then maybe you start getting mad at yourself. But like, if you made them twice and then the third time you don't, that's victory. I agree. Wow. I could talk to you a hundred more hours. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining us. Where can people find you and your book? And when does your book come out? So my book comes out on the 12th of March. They can find it in all the places online and in any bookstore. It's, it's up right now and ready for pre-orders. And people can find me at Anne 
lester.com, A-N-N-E-L-E-S-T-E-R.com. I'm on social media. My handle is Save Smart W-N, Save Smart with N, except that was too many letters for Instagram, so it's W. Yeah, so I'm out there and would love to hear from people and, you know, love to get some questions coming in and I can I can answer them and we can get some conversations going. That would be great. What is what is your book called? Your, my book is called Your Best Financial Life, Save Smart Now for the Future You Want. We should do another episode where people just write in their questions and then we can do a QA. and a So we did an episode with a friend of mine who's a tax. I would love that. Like a tax expert. And we called it the boring episode. And it did so well because she was answering like tax questions. And I was like, I can't believe how well this boring episode did because it's not boring. So I would. No, if people, it's important. Like, yeah, I'd love that. Yeah, That'd if people want to write in, maybe we'll bring Anne back and she can answer your questions because I very, I think probably the book and you in real life were very, a very soothing teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Talk to my team about that. But yeah, no, it was good. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Gabe. Bad With Money with Gabe Shane Dunn is a production of Noted Bisexual, produced by Melissa D. Monts and Diamond M. Print Productions, edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Coco Lorenz and music by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen as sung by Sam Barbera. Thank you. Love you. Bye.